Hi, this is Brent White. Welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on Christmas Eve 2017 at Hampton United Methodist. This was the second of two new sermons that I preached on that particular day because Christmas Eve fell on Sunday. And this sermon is about the angel's announcement to the shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. I talk in this sermon about some amazing things that God does during the course of this Christmas story. But the most amazing thing of all, indeed the most difficult thing that God does, is provide a way for all of humanity to find forgiveness for their sins through faith in God's Son, Jesus. That is by far the most amazing and difficult thing about the Christmas story. I'm going to talk about why. And today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, which I'm going to read now. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This morning in my sermon, I talked about the Magi and how most likely they were from Babylon, about 700 miles east of Bethlehem. And I want us to think for just a moment about what God had to do in order to get the Magi to come to Bethlehem, to see Jesus, to have their lives transformed by his life-saving love and grace. God did one of two things 
with the star of Bethlehem. Either, as some Christians think, it was a completely natural event, or it was a miraculously created star. If it was a natural event, think about this. God designed the universe in such a way that at just the right moment in history, this natural astronomical event would appear in the night sky Get the attention of the Magi, inspire them to travel those 700 miles to see this newborn king of the Jews. If it was a completely supernatural event, well, God had to create a star out of nothing that would get their attention and cause them to do the same thing. In my sermon, I said, just think, for the sake of saving a few lost, superstitious, idolatrous, pagan, polytheistic men. God literally moved heaven and earth to lead these men to salvation through Christ like it was nothing at all. Isn't that amazing? God is amazing. Similarly, in tonight's scripture, God does something equally powerful, equally amazing. You see, Micah 5, verse 2, tells us that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, in the house of David, in David's hometown. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old from ancient days. The scribes and the high priests, the the Bible scholars of the day understood this prophecy to mean that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. One small problem. The Messiah's mother and her fiance, who would be the adoptive father of the Messiah and the son of God, they are about 80 miles north of Bethlehem. Their hometown, as opposed to Joseph's ancestral home, but their hometown is in Nazareth. They have to travel from Nazareth, 80 miles south, down to Bethlehem in time to have Jesus be born there. And guess what? Mary's probably over eight months pregnant or something like that. She's going to have this baby soon. How are they going to get from point A to point B? Well, God does something amazing. He puts it in the mind of the most powerful ruler the world had ever seen up to that point, Caesar Augustus. God puts it in his mind to call for a census, an empire-wide census. Everyone would have to register. Everyone would have to return to their ancestral home and register for this census. Even those who are eight-plus months pregnant And voila, just like that, God has made it possible for Joseph and Mary to make that 80-mile trek south to Bethlehem. One pastor points out that God isn't really interested in doing things efficiently. Whether it's moving heaven and earth for the sake of a few astrologers or moving tens of thousands or or hundreds of thousands of people around an empire like pieces on a chessboard, all for the sake of moving two of the world's nobodies 
I mean, in the eyes of the world, Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that scripture can be fulfilled. It's almost as if God were showing off, you know, like, like watch me solve this problem. It's going to be bigger than you can imagine. This is not, these things are not hard for God to accomplish. God can do these amazing things and it is no sweat for God. For my sermon tonight, I want us to focus on some amazing words. Surely some of the most amazing words ever uttered, the words of the angel in verse 11 of Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In fact, I want to focus mostly on just one word in that verse. That one word is Savior. The angel is telling these shepherds the same message that the angel Gabriel told Mary when he announced to her that she was going to conceive and give birth to Jesus, which is the same message that the angel told Joseph when he encouraged Joseph to believe the words of his fiance when she told him she had miraculously conceived a child, even though she was still a virgin. And that message is this. Jesus, whose very name means God saves, was coming into the world to save people from their sins. As the angel said to Joseph, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So right here at the beginning of Luke's gospel and and earlier at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we are told that the main problem facing us human beings The problem that God sent Jesus into the world to solve is our problem with sin. All other problems we face, no matter how frightening, no matter how enormous, no matter how dire, are secondary to this main problem. And as much as Jesus has inspired and empowered and motivated his followers throughout these many centuries to help alleviate the world's problem, humanity's problem with sin will always be the main problem that he came to solve. Jesus makes this same point later in the Gospels after he begins his ministry. Remember that episode involving the four Friends, And they have their friend who is paralyzed, unable to walk. They're carrying him around on a mat. And they want, they want their friend to meet Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. They know Jesus has the power to work miracles of healing. Perhaps they've seen Jesus give eyesight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf, give speech to the mute, uh, help the, enable the lame to walk. Um, even raise people from the dead. Jesus does that on a few occasions. I don't know what they'd heard or what they'd seen, but they knew that Jesus had the power to work miracles. The only problem is when these four friends arrive at the house where Jesus is staying in Capernaum, well, Jesus is very popular. Word about Jesus's authoritative teaching and preaching Word about his healing power has spread, and it's likely that people all around the Sea of Galilee and the villages and towns around that lake have come to see Jesus for themselves, to bring their own sick loved ones to Jesus. And I'm sure the house isn't very big, 
It's crowded. So these four friends and their disabled friends show up at the house and it's like, you know, you show up for a concert and and it's sold out. Standing room only. If there were a fire marshal in Capernaum, I'm sure he would tell the owners of the house to shut it down. There's too many people here. It's it's dangerous. But there was not a fire marshal in Capernaum. And it's standing room only that the friends can't get their disabled friend to Jesus. But they don't give up. They're persistent. They're resourceful. What do they do? They climb on top of the house, on the roof of the house, which is made of thatch, which, as I understand it, is, is, uh, is, is uh, straw mixed with mud. And it dries and it's sort of like concrete. And they, they go to the place on the ceiling, on the, on the roof, above where Jesus is teaching down below and they literally just punch a hole in the ceiling. I don't know who's going to clean that up or pay for it, but you know, they're again resourceful and they 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 break this hole in the ceiling and then they lower their friend down on a mat in front of Jesus. And Jesus says some words to this man that are shocking. He says, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Now, these words are shocking to us. They were likely shocking to the four friends because we suspect that they wanted Jesus not simply or mostly or mainly to forgive the man's sins. They wanted Jesus to perform a physical healing. When we read the story, we want Jesus to perform a physical healing. But what do we see Jesus do? He forgives the man's sins. And if you look at the story, Luke, uh, Mark chapter two, you can look at it. It seems like Jesus is going to just leave it there. Jesus is not interested in doing doing anything further than forgiving this paralyzed man's sins. Even after all the trouble that these four friends go to, to carry him to Jesus's house and to break the ceiling. And Jesus doesn't even heal him, at least, you know, from their perspective or from our perspective. Now, for the scribes and Pharisees, they respond very differently. They're shocked at what Jesus does, not because he doesn't perform a physical miracle or I mean, if Jesus had simply told the man to to take his mat and walk, um, The Pharisees and the scribes wouldn't have had a problem with that. I mean, that's impressive, but but that that alone wouldn't have turned them against Jesus. No, the reason why the scribes and the Pharisees turn against Jesus is because they know that no mere man has the authority or the ability to forgive someone's sins. The forgiveness of sins, that authority, that power belongs to God alone and no one else. And they are probably they are thinking to themselves, who does this Jesus think he is? He is committing blasphemy. That's what's in their in their thoughts. That's what they're grumbling about. Well, Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so Jesus says to them, he asks a perfectly logical question. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven Or to say, take up your mat and walk. Well, it's a rhetorical question. We know what the answer is. Jesus knows what the answer is. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because whether they are or not, nobody will really know. 
You can't put the man's soul under a microscope and see, uh, you know, whether or not this spiritual invisible reality has come true or not. So, of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. If you say, take up your mat and walk, you can just watch and see if the guy does that. I mean, you'll know for sure whether or not Jesus performed the miracle. But here's the thing. If if these scribes and Pharisees had not questioned Jesus's authority to forgive sins, he never would have performed the physical miracle. It just it seems like an afterthought from Jesus's perspective, from Jesus's perspective, forgiving the man's sin is the hard thing. Did you hear that? Forgiving the man's sin is the hard thing. Healing him physically is the easy thing. You know, before Christ became incarnate, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, created the universe and everything in it. It is no sweat for him to perform physical miracles. It's no problem for Jesus to heal this paralyzed man. See, we're the exact opposite of Jesus. We think that the easy thing is for Jesus to forgive sins. That's what Jesus does, right? He forgives. It's no big deal. It's a light thing. It's an easy thing for Jesus to do. The hard thing, the really impressive thing, is for Jesus to heal this man's disability. Now, this story resonates with me, especially at this time of year. Uh, my own father, as Lisa mentioned in the early uh, this morning's service, my own father died at Christmas time back in 1995. In fact, he died 22 years ago last Thursday. Um, he died of terminal cancer. And early, early in his disease, after his diagnosis, and at this point the cancer was already fairly advanced, I was praying, my mom was praying, my sisters were praying, our friends were praying, our extended family was praying for, we were praying for an actual physical miracle of healing. We were praying for that. And there was no question that when what we were asking God to do was going to take, you know, a a very uh, impressive uh, miracle from God. Um, We were praying that God would eliminate the cancer or at least send it into remission for a long time. What we believed we were asking God to do back in 1995 was not a light thing or an easy thing. We believe we were asking God to do a very difficult thing. And God did not grant our petition. Dad was able to receive some chemotherapy, which prolonged his life uh, for several months, for which we were all grateful But he would succumb to this cancer a few days before Christmas in 1995. At the time, at that time, when we found out about the diagnosis, we were we were a lot like um, the four friends. Healing dad's cancer seemed so hard. Healing dad's soul by forgiving his sins. Well, that that's not hard. That's not a big deal. 
That didn't seem like nearly as big a, a, big a deal as a, a physical healing. Isn't that funny that we thought that? But here's the truth as I understand it now. It's the truth that we all need to hear. The cancer killed him. But my father was absolutely healed. Healed in the only way that matters. Healed in the only eternal way that people can be healed. He was healed spiritually because his sins were forgiven. During his last year of life, he trusted in Jesus like he never did before. He read the Bible like he never did before. He prayed like he never did before. He found Jesus, possibly for the first time in his life. He found the forgiveness of his sins through Christ. He was healed. Even if the Lord back then had granted our petition and saved my father from this cancer, I mean, given his lifestyle, Given his uh, his genes, <laughs> the genetic stuff that he inherited, uh, he would have died probably by now. He'd be dead. Because any healing other than spiritual healing, which is mostly the forgiveness of sin, any physical healing is strictly temporary. So so I'm glad for this message that the angel communicated to these shepherds. I'm glad that he told them unto us is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm glad that the main reason that Jesus came was to save us from our sins because that's an eternal kind of healing. For me, the good news of Christmas that I need to hear right now is that God sent his son Jesus into the world to heal Alton White eternally. And, and I know I'm speaking these words in the context of a church, uh, some of whose congregation members are sick, some of whose congregation members are, are grieving. They're missing their family. Whether they probably, some, some of you probably had family who died around Christmas like I did. And every Christmas you, 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 you rekindle these, these feelings of sadness. And we, I know we have a family in our church right now, uh, one of whose members is, is in hospice care. And it's really going to be any moment. Um, so, you know, for... Paula, Brian, Brittany, Ashley, David, and Ed. This will be their last Christmas that Pat will be with them or will be with us. And it's sad to think about what we're going to lose when Pat dies. So Pat's family, Pat's brothers and sisters in Christ need to hear the good news of Christmas. God sent his son Jesus into the world to heal Pat Charette eternally. And for everyone else during this season whose hearts are heavy with grief, hear the good news of Christmas. God sent his son Jesus into the world to heal you and to heal your loved ones eternally. Because we are Christmas people. And we celebrate alongside these shepherds and alongside these angels. We celebrate this amazing proclamation unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, not a surgeon, not a scientist, 
but a savior so that all of us who turn to Christ in faith will find that our sins are forgiven and will have eternal life. I began this sermon talking about how easy it is for God to perform just the most spectacular kind kinds of, of miracles like getting the most powerful ruler, ruler the world has ever seen, Caesar Augustus, to call for a census, which would in turn bring two nobodies from the world's perspective from Nazareth to Bethlehem or to literally move heaven and earth in order to get a few lost souls from one part of the world to the other so they can be saved. This is not hard for God. It's not hard uh, for this same God to make a, a paralytic walk or a blind man to see or a hemorrhaging woman to stop bleeding. It's not even hard for this same God to raise someone back to life. That's not hard. But the forgiveness of sins, the thing that we so often take lightly, that we take for granted. This is, from God's perspective, incredibly hard. Was it not hard when Jesus, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, was it not hard when Jesus sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed to his Father, if possible, take this cup, This cup of God's wrath, according to the Old Testament. Take this cup from me. I'll drink this cup down to its dregs, Father, if I have to. But if it's possible, take this cup from me. Was it not hard when he endured the beatings, the mockings, the crown of thorns thrust on his head, the nails driven through his hands and feet? Was it not hard, the hardest thing of all? When according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we who place our faith in him might become the righteousness of God, might receive as a free gift Christ's own righteousness, which is the only basis by which we can stand before a holy God and have the assurance of eternal life. Was it not hard? When Jesus experienced the God-forsaken death, the suffering, the separation from the Father, the hell that we deserve to suffer, and he did so on our behalf. Was it not hard when he cried out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what forgiveness of our sins cost God. God paid for forgiveness with the blood of his son, Jesus, which is to say, because God is a trinity, God himself paid for it with his own blood on the cross. That is the only way, biblically speaking, that forgiveness of sins is possible. That God could somehow become one of us, live the life of perfect obedience to his father that we are unable to live, die the death that we deserve to die, suffer the hell that we deserve to suffer in our place because God loves us with a love that is incomprehensible to us. God purchased our forgiveness with the shedding of his own blood. The only way forgiveness is possible. And how does God... How does God have blood to shed in the first place? 
How does he have a body that can bear the punishment for our sin? How does God become that perfect substitute for us human beings in the first place? How does God die in order to save us in the first place by becoming human? And that, brothers and sisters, is the meaning of Christmas. That is what we are celebrating this evening and tomorrow and throughout this season. And maybe some of you are are saying or you're thinking right now, now, Pastor Brent, it sounds like you might have your seasons confused. It sounds like you might have your, your holidays confused. It is still, it's just the beginning of winter. We're not in spring yet. And you're, it sounds like you're talking about Good Friday and Easter. This is Christmas. But brothers and sisters, if you're wondering about that, you don't understand. The meaning of Christmas is Easter. Now, I want to leave you with one final thought. Look at verse 14. The angels, now this one angel, it's funny, this one angel who's talking to the shepherds has been joined by a company, a host, an army. That's what host means, of of fellow angels. It's almost like this news is is so great that, that a single angel isn't able to announce it without just a whole bunch of other angels joining him. And they say to these shepherds, glory to God in the highest And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Did you hear that? With whom he is pleased. Now, some of you who are familiar with the Gospels, that may ring a bell. That may sound familiar. Like you've heard that somewhere else. And you have. In fact, in the Greek uh, language, it would look even very more similar. But you've heard this language when Jesus was baptized. And he hears this voice from heaven, the voice of his father, who says, this is my son in whom I am what? Well pleased. And now the angels are announcing that because of Christmas and because of what Christ will do through his life, his death, his resurrection, because of all those things, because of this 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 process that begins at Christmas. The relationship that Jesus Christ enjoys with his father is now going to be shared with those of us who place our faith in Christ. The heavenly, our heavenly father who looks on Christ with such great love because Jesus is perfectly holy perfectly loving. He's everything that we're not. The the way that the Father looks on Jesus through faith in Christ, the Father will now look on us in the same way. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. The Bible says we now become children of God, sons of God, daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus himself. That's the privilege that we receive through faith in Christ. And what, what we need to hear this evening, this is the, such amazingly good news. If you believe in Jesus, our Father will say of you, you are my son 
with whom I am well pleased. You are my daughter with whom I am well pleased. We human parents who have children, we know about that unbreakable bond of love that we have for our children. But guess what? We human parents, we're no comparison to God's love, to our father's love for his children. He loves us with that same unbreakable bond of love. Scripture says nothing separates us. Once we believe in Jesus, nothing separates us from this love. Not even the things that we worry about the most, the things that scare us the most, like death, for instance. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And for that, I want all of us to say amen. Amen. And can you even say hallelujah? Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. We praise you, God, for this amazing good news of Christmas. Through your son, Jesus, you had to become one of us in order to save us. And that's what Christmas means. Encourage us with this message. Inspire us with this message. Help us to live courageously and without fear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on a Sunday morning, I hope that you will feel welcome to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two worship services. We have a nine o'clock acoustic contemporary service, and then we have a more traditional service at 11. I hope you'll join us.